The economic and trade relationships between the U.S. and China have been a topic of much debate. It is in the best interest of all parties involved to stay up to date with the latest trends and developments in the business climate in order to identify both emerging risks and opportunities, especially for businesses in sectors that are currently in the spotlight, such as semiconductors, solar panels, and electric vehicles. I'm Randall Rubenking, and you are listening to Baker Hosts. On today's episode, we join Peter Roskam, the leader of Baker Hostetler's federal policy team, and Shah Zhu, an international trade analyst on Baker Hostetler's international trade team. They will be discussing how companies in both the U.S. and China can successfully navigate the fast-paced political impacts of trade, including U.S. sanctions and the sentiment of Chinese-language media. Welcome to the show, Peter and Shah. Thanks, Randall. Thank you, Randall. Hi, Peter. Hi, Shah. Would each of you like to say a few words to introduce yourselves to our audience, Peter? Yeah, I'm happy to. I'm Peter Roskam. I'm a partner in Baker Hostetler, and I lead the federal policy practice. I spent 25 years in public life before joining the firm. Twelve of those years were representing a constituency outside of Chicago in the U.S. House of Representatives, where I served on the Ways and Means Committee, which has jurisdiction over tax, trade, and healthcare policy, and chaired three of the subcommittees there and was also in my party's leadership. So it's nice to be with you, Randall. Thanks for the invitation. Sure. Shaw, how about you? Sure. Peter is a very hard person to follow, but I'll try my very best. Hello, everyone. My name is Shaw. I'm based in Baker's DC office as an international trade analyst. I support both the Trade Remedy Group and the National Security Team. More specifically, I helped with the anti-dumping countervailing duty and customs issues on the remedy side, as well as sanction export control issues on the national security side. It's a great honor to be here, especially speaking with Peter. So thanks for the opportunity. Peter, first let me say congratulations on the successful conclusion of the 34th Baker Hostetler Annual Legislative Seminar in this past June. Could you share some views from your bipartisan panel regarding the recent congressional actions toward China, especially those by the House Select Committee on China? It was a really interesting panel. We had both sides of the aisle represented and uh, the widest range of political perspectives as well from both the left and, and the right. And they came together and we had several hundred clients and partners and other friends of the firm who were in attendance. We were able to get into China policy in particular with the select committee because we had Raja Krishnamathorthy, who is the ranking Democrat on the committee, and also Congressman Ted Liu, who's in the congressional leadership on the Democratic side. And both of them brought a perspective on China, which I thought was interesting. Raj's perspective as a member of the China committee was a little bit more aggressive, and he sounded like there wasn't too much daylight between him and his Republican counterpart, Congressman Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin. And the two of them are leading a bipartisan effort within Congress, which is pretty remarkable in this sense. If, if you're an observer of the U.S. Congress, you know that there's a lot of discord, a lot of anxiety, and a lot of animosity among the parties. And yet, 
both sides of the aisle have come together in this notion that China is now a strategic opponent of the United States. And as such, policies have to be enacted to, you know, to protect U.S. intellectual property and and dealing with a whole host of other issues. So it wasn't so much the specifics, Randall, of what they were saying, but it was the tone of what they were communicating, which was interesting. And it was a bipartisan disposition that looked at China as a strategic opponent. Very good. Well, that's encouraging to hear that both sides are, are working together on this particular issue. Now, Shah, you issue a weekly China newsletter to your Baker colleagues and clients, and that includes updates on the latest U.S. sanctions on Chinese entities and individuals. Can you tell us what's covered in the most recent issue, perhaps with a focus on the hottest sectors such as semiconductor, solar panels, and electric vehicles? Thank you, Randall, for picking up my very small publication. It was originated as a turn, internal digest for very busy attorneys to grasp what's the latest and most important news that's relevant to their line of work. It started when I joined about November 2020, and now a increase to be a readership include both our attorneys who have China in their portfolio and their clients who volunteered their time to be a reader. So I'm very honored to be an author of this small but growing publication. Yes, I just wanted to lay out a, a little bit of the background of how this wave of U.S. sanctions on China has been coming so front and center. Almost every trade pr- practitioner and in other business attention. As we know, when China became communist in 1949, it has already become a target of the Western's export control measures. And during Cold War, not too many people know that more products were restricted to export to China than to the Soviet Union. The Washington's control list for China, before it got very popularized in the mainstream news, was in 2007. And that list include a short list of items that are the airplanes and engines, optical fibers, advanced navigation system, a laser, and depleted uranium. But to this list, we have seen all the actions around Washington in recent years has been adding a lot of emphasis on emerging and basic technologies such as 4G semiconductor material, advanced electronic computer-aided design software, and network safety. And tension between the two countries really escalated when the Trump administration took a very hard economic stance and started the so-called trade war in 2018. And during Biden administration, although it was in everyone's hope that things would de-escalate, we have not seen much effort to settle these tensions. And Biden administration also had a few measures to really slow the growth of the Chinese tech sector. So China has been the subject to mounting U.S. sanctions, which was reflected in the newsletter. The top section is talking about all of the China-focused hearings and legislations. It's a law in the making. I think the highlight of this most recent month is the National Defense Authorization Act, where the Senate has passed overwhelmingly that can in place a reporting system for to notify the government of certain transactions with countries of concerns, pre- predominantly China and Russia. And this 
relates to the national critical capabilities such as semiconductor, battery with dual use, quantum t- technologies, microelectronics, artificial intelligence, etc., etc. And the newsletter will continue to talk about the newest import barriers and export controls, which are the few sectors that you highlighted: the semiconductors, the EV-related technologies, and Everything that really concerns the future of our way of work and play, which is all included, and then I will go on to talk about broader trade and investment issues, especially with technologies that go across borders. I will save it for a later comment of the China's reaction to it. But just looking at the U.S. side, we can see that things are fast progressing. By the day, not even by the week. So there's certainly a lot to monitor, and for this newsletter to be comprehensive, I'm really trying to stay until the very last minute of publication to capture the latest news. I see. Well, that's quite an undertaking. Let's focus a little bit from the other side, Shah. Maybe on trade in general. Given the latest high-level visits by U.S. officials to China, and some of the remarks made by both sides. What is your view on where U.S.-China trade is headed, and especially what are the sentiments you get from China as you read the Chinese language media? Well, thank you for the question, Randall. Yes, of course, being an observer, a keen observer of U.S.-China relations, especially trade and economics, I have definitely followed the keyword that's being highlighted by both administrations. We started at a very Risky point, which is called decoupling, and we can hear voices from both the administration and the industry that it's definitely a no-go zone. So people try to pull it back from a very unimaginable scenario of these two major economies detach each other's link, and it's really a a mutual destructive act in both countries. And then we move. To the de-risk keyword, which means that we need to contain the scale and the severity of the sanctions that we put on to each other, and all of the formal ways of in- impairing trade, such as the ex- uh, the all the re- trade remedy measures、um, that's already very familiar to、uh, a area of Chinese products in the U.S. Um, but in recent visit by、uh, Secretary Yellen, which is to your question, all the the both sides are observing the changes in the terminology and in the emphasis of each other. And she was smart to highlight the diversification is the new direction to go because a lot of global issues definitely require the two countries to combine their resources and put their policies and. Practices together in order to move forward the entire human race. Therefore, the diversification I think is a, definitely a message received by the Chinese part, as well as her gesture to be opening up a series of more talks and to resume formality with China after this long and disruptive period of time. Just quickly on that. Secretary Kerry, who is a special envoy on climate change, he also visited China after Secretary Yellen. And although there were no major breakthroughs, but he was able to reconnect with his, his counterpart and cont- further along those issues for a shared climate agenda. 
So I think those are all good signals that we see at the highest level of a willingness to collaborate and to resume the a natural path that the two countries used to be on. Of course, we're not trying to be over optimistic here that things will quickly improve to the pre-pandemic or the pre-trade war era. But we, as observer and as practitioner in the group, we are very um, heartened to see that a lot of the high-level signals are going that direction. It just allow me to say a few words of China's reaction to all these, uh, because it's important to observe things on both sides. Of course, we've seen that China has taken on a lot of measures that it's being used on, and now China is being an active user of all of those export restrictions. Predominantly, we see the gallium and germanium that was banned to be exported to China. Although the new licensing regime is not about controlling, but it's not an outright ban. China still wanted to preserve the supplies of this niche material. So if you read the doctrine from the trade ministry, export application that meet requirements will still be approved. So I think it's very strong positioning tool for them to say we actually have this export control measures we can put in place, but also you have to be reading into those policies for companies to better understand how they can avoid all the uh, disruptive risk to their supply chain. Wow. It sounds to me like it's is one of the more complex things going on in the world with the trade between China and U.S., we really appreciate you you keeping an eye on it and keeping us up to date on Certainly. that. Peter, we're also fans of your Right Lens newsletter on LinkedIn. Your comments on TikTok hearing through C-suite eyes are particularly brilliant. What would your top three bits of advice be for Chinese enterprises in terms of risk mitigation and smart positioning as they continue to expand in the U.S. market? Yeah, Randall, it's an interesting question, and I want to pick up on something that Shaw emphasized when she was describing where, you know, where U.S.-China policy is going from a commercial point of view and, and to get to your question. She raised two concepts. One was decoupling, which is more aggressive, and one was de-risking, which is less aggressive. And we heard both of those themes articulated at the Baker-Hostetler legislative panel. There were some panelists who said, look, we absolutely, the U.S. economy needs to completely decouple from China. And they, they gave that argument. And there was another panelist that said, that's completely unrealistic. There's no way this can happen. The two economies are inextricably linked in significant ways. And, and, and you can't decouple. And then you get to Shaw's concept that she articulated a minute ago about de-risking. This is all to say that there's a kind of an American national sense of anxiety about China and, and what's going on and looking at the activity in the Xinjiang province and the Uyghurs and so forth. These are really troubling things that Americans see happening in China. And so if you're a Chinese enterprise, I guess my first bit of advice would be make sure you have a clear understanding of who you are as an enterprise and what your relationship is to the Chinese Communist Party. If there's elements of being a state-owned enterprise, or if you're really inextricably linked to the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, the U.S. government is going to care about that, and it's going to get a lot of attention. Part of the proof of that 
was the bipartisan U.S.-China committee recently sent a letter to four venture capital firms in the United States asking them detailed questions and documents for documents about what's the nature of the investments that they're making in China. And there's going to be an increased level of scrutiny. So if you're a Chinese enterprise, recognize that's the type of pressure and inquiry that your foreign interlocutors are dealing with. Just as an aside, that the letter that went out to the four venture capital firms, I can easily see that, Randall, turning into something far broader, far deeper, far more expansive. And it could become a level of inquiry that comes not just to to private venture capital firms, but it could be a level of inquiry that comes from Congress to even public companies. And so American public companies need to be mindful of that. So number one, understand who you are as it relates to the Chinese state. Number two, I would say have a really clear understanding about what your economic impact is in the United States. The United States political system is a political system that's driven by constituencies and constituent interests. And if there's a deep connection that a foreign firm has from an economic point of view in a particular state or region, that should be well understood and and well documented. And I think sometimes there's a tendency on the part of foreign investors into the United States of not really taking that into account or not really having a, a deep understanding of that. And so an understanding of that would be important and being able to to tell that story to American audiences is a significantly powerful thing. And then finally, I would say a willingness to enter into conversations with American policymakers to say, look, what can we do to reassure you that we're interested in doing business? We're not interested in taking advantage of a situation. So I think those three things are, they're a little bit esoteric. They're a little bit not as concrete as, as I would have hoped, but that's the advice I would have for foreign investors in the United States right now. Well, I feel like we've just barely scratched the surface on this whole thing. I hope you'll both join us again sometime for a follow-up. Thanks very much, Peter and Shaw. Thanks, Randall. Thanks, Shaw. Thank you, Randall, Peter. It's our pleasure. Thank you, Peter and Shaw. If you have any questions for Peter or Shaw, their contact information is in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening to Baker Hosts. Comments heard on Baker Hosts are for informational purposes and should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. Listeners should not act upon the information provided on Baker Hosts without first consulting with a lawyer directly. The opinions expressed on Baker Hosts are those of participants appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information about our practices and experience, please visit bakerlaw.com.